Welcome to Listen In, a podcast about what made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm talking to project co-director Emily Robbins-Sharp about Jewish and African-American participation in the war and the war's place in Jewish, North American, and African-American literature. But first, a content warning. This episode includes discussions of anti-Blackness, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust. Before we dive into the interview, I want to provide some important background. In today's episode, Emily and I talk about the invasion of Ethiopia and its impact on African Americans. Some brief background from Molly Crabapple's article, Hidden Fighters, Remembering America's Black Anti-Fascist Vanguard. In 1934, Ethiopia was one of just two African countries that had never been colonized by Europe, but wasn't for lack of trying. Ethiopian Emperor Menelik II had trounced Italian invaders in 1896, and nearly four decades later, the fascist Italian leader Benito Mussolini yearned to avenge his imperial homeland's humiliation. In December 1934, Mussolini's forces provoked a confrontation at Walwal, on the border between Ethiopia and Italian-held Somaliland. Though Ethiopia belonged to the League of Nations, France and Britain had little desire to protect their fellow member state, especially when they were still hoping to persuade Mussolini to join an alliance against Nazi Germany. Why expend their continental political capital for a poor African nation? Even the Soviet Union, which paid lip service to Ethiopian independence, was shown by the New York Times to have made a killing by exporting supplies to the camps of would-be occupying Italian forces in Africa. So as Emily describes in our interview, many African Americans loudly protested the fascist invasion of Ethiopia. Many were interested in volunteering to defend Ethiopia, but only one African American succeeded in making it to Ethiopia during the war. That was John Robinson. Emperor Haile Selassie appointed Robinson the head of the Imperial Ethiopian Air Force. Selassie was pressured by foreign governments to reject other foreign volunteers. Ethiopia was left with few resources to fight back, and Italy subjected Ethiopia to brutal violence, including sustained bombings of civilian territories. Despite their inadequate resources, Ethiopian troops defended the country for a long time, though the Italians claimed victory in April of 1936. So quoting again from Molly Crabapple's article, On June 30th, 1936, Emperor Haile Selassie stood before the League of Nations and begged its members to end their appeasement of fascism. Today it is us, he supposedly said, as he left the podium. Tomorrow it will be you. Eighteen days later, fascist generals launched a revolt against the elected government of Spain. I'm going to include links in the show notes to other writing and research on the Italo-Ethiopian War, including Molly Crapapel's article. But I also want to give background on another aspect of African involvement in the Spanish Civil War. When the Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936, Spain's once expansive colonial empire had shrunk. Now Spain's only colonial holdings were in North Africa. Spain occupied Moroccan territory after the Rif Wars in 1909-1910 and 1920-1926. When Spain transitioned from monarchy to democracy in 1931, Moroccan leaders attempted to negotiate independence from Spanish rule, but the Spanish Republican government refused. Meanwhile, Francisco Franco, a major military figure in the Rift Wars, was exiled to the Canary Islands, just off the coast of Morocco. From exile, Franco manipulated Moroccan unrest for his own cause, and eventually harnessed some of Morocco's anti-Spain, anti-colonial energy for his rebellion. And here I'm quoting from Emily Robbins Sharp's scholarship on this period. 
Despite Franco's instrumental role in Morocco's colonization by Spain in the first place, Franco's propaganda inspired support primarily from Arab and Berber Muslims by representing his current insurgency as a reconquest of Spain. Franco promised independence in exchange for Moroccan mercenary support for his, for his assault on Republican Spain. And many, but by no means all, Moroccans were prepared to fight in what was called the Army of Africa, alongside the fascists in the hopes of decolonization or simply from financial desperation. So while Franco and the fascists relied on air support for Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, Franco relied heavily on Moroccan soldiers as shock troops on the ground. So the Moroccan mercenaries are often referred to as the Moors, the Moorish soldiers, or the Army of Africa, and they're also described in some pretty awful ways, and we'll touch on that in our interview. here with co-director of Canada and the Spanish Civil War, Emily Robbins-Sharp, and we're going to talk about race and the Spanish Civil War. We're going to talk about Jewishness. Is that a race? I don't know. We'll find out. Nope. <laughs> we're going to talk about Black and African-American participation in the Spanish Civil War. So welcome, Emily. Do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you. Sure. I'm Emily Robbins-Sharp. I am the co-director of the Canada and Spanish Civil War project and I am an assistant professor in the English department at Keene State College in Keene, New Hampshire. And I'm also an affiliate faculty member of the departments of women's and gender studies and Holocaust and genocide studies. So many studies. So much studying. <laughs> I'm just curious when you first learned about the Spanish Civil War and why it interested you. So I first learned about the Spanish Civil War when I was taking classes. I did my BA at King's College in Dalhousie, and I was taking a couple of classes in modernist literature, British modernism, Canadian modernism, and transnational modernism, and a lot of modernist poets were writing about the Spanish Civil War. So I think the first one I read was probably Auden, but in a course on Canadian modernist poetry with Dean Irving, we read a lot of poems about the Spanish Civil War. And so after I did that, I moved to Spain for a year. I was teaching in the public school system and, as it turns out, living in a historically fascist neighborhood. And there was, uh, yeah, <laughs> there was a real disjuncture between all the poetry that I had been reading and some, I should say, in some mm -hmm. fiction too, like Hugh Garner's Cabbage Town, where Canadian, American, British, transnational authors were very explicitly talking about what was going on in Spain. Um, and then actually being in Spain was a very different experience. So that is what got yeah. me interested in studying the conflict and its, the literature that it produced. So I know that you have a book coming out and it's about Spanish Civil War literature, but can you tell me what specifically it's about? What I'm trying to do is reframe, I think, the familiar narrative of Spain's noble but ultimately tragic struggle against fascism in the Spanish Civil War by thinking about how fighting in the Spanish Civil War or participating, supporting the Spanish Republic 
in in literature, um, literary, you know, literature of all kinds, helped individuals from marginalized groups to craft narratives actually about citizenship and belonging. So there's something mm -hmm. paradoxical there about transnational involvement being a way of understanding national belonging. Um, yeah. So I focus primarily on the, the extensive literary contributions of Jewish Canadian writers, but I bring those literary texts into conversation with, with a North American grouping. So looking at not only Jewish writers, but also writers marginalized for a, a variety of reasons. And of course, these are all like overlapping, right? So writers who yeah. identified as Jewish, as Black, as immigrants, as women, as queer. And I'm trying to foreground those narratives as a way of, of reconfiguring how we think about the Spanish Civil War's significance in Canada and more broadly in North America. That sounds so great. So you talked about how you kind of focus on Jewish Canadian literature around the Spanish Civil War. So is there a lot of Jewish North American literature that takes up the Spanish Civil War? There is a lot. And, and what's interesting to me, too, is that there's a lot from the time of the Spanish Civil War, you know, primarily poetry. I think that's how a lot of us think about the sort of primarily the Canadian literary contribution. But there mm -hmm. are also like there's an ongoing engagement with the Spanish Civil War in a lot of literature as well. So in the last section of my book, I'm looking at post-2000 novels that take up the Spanish Civil War. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at Mordecai Richler's various writings and um, about the Spanish Civil War, in not only in his fiction, but also in his memoir. So this seems to be a moment in time that a lot of writers keep going back to. And mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense, right? If you see it as... World War II's first act, if you see it as the prelude to the Holocaust, if you see it as the sort of second warning shot after fascist Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, there's a lot of reason to be nostalgic for the transnational solidarity and also to be deeply regretful of the ways in which the, the world continued to turn away. I think a lot about how failure plays into the literature of the Spanish Civil War and also its legacy, like, it's so exciting when you're reading about it in the moment, but you always have to contend with this epic failure that leads into really horrific Second World War concentration camps and bombings and yeah it's tough in a lot of the african-american literature about the spanish civil war that i've been reading there is just this this deep sense of frustration from people who had wanted to volunteer in ethiopia and mm -hmm. to support ethiopia when italy invaded so this sense um i think on on the part of a lot of african-american volunteers that they had tried to volunteer in Ethiopia mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons in terms of like the American government um, and I think Haile Selassie's um, hesitation to accept international support they weren't allowed to and so you know that sort of famous line from Oscar Hunter's short story um, where he says this ain't Ethiopia but it'll do like this is another place where we can try and vanquish fascism in another one of its forms and so then to, for the for World War II to 
break out after that when you have all these volunteers who were so aware of the tight link between Jim Crow, fascism, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism, and Nazism is is really like is frustrating and is tangibly fr- like frustrating to feel in their writings that like there is as you're saying this like triumphal narrative, but we have to as critical thinkers like not get too caught up too in the in the triumphs because we also know what the the larger framework was for this. I'm going to probably come back to Jewish participation, but I'm curious because you just brought it up, what Black and African-American participation looked like? Like, were there many volunteers in the Spanish Civil War? Mm -hmm. There were between 80 and 100 African-American soldiers who volunteered. And then there were, from what I've been able to count, four African-American women who traveled to Spain. The soldiers were all male. So there is one African-American woman whose participation has been widely reported on, widely recorded. Um, her name is Solaria Key, and she went to Spain as a nurse. She, she was trained as a nurse in New York. So she goes to Spain and, and works really hard as a nurse, which was her training. She's finally in a desegregated nursing unit, the American Medical Bureau, and her face is on the cover of Into the Fire, which is a documentary <laughs> made about American women's participation. Um, but but in the midst of all of this, her own words, her, her the multiple memoirs that she wrote about her time in Spain, those have really been by and large, shunted to the side. The other, the other thing that I always try and keep in mind is that she was not the only African American woman to mm-hmm. travel to Spain and to support the Spanish Republic. But she was the one who, who, whose volunteer work was in the most stereotypically feminized way as yeah. a nurse. So it's like a caring role. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, Tyra Edwards worked as an ambulance driver. There was also um, Islanda Good Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife, who spent some time there. So the the ways in which um, gender and race intersect in how histories of the Spanish Civil War have um, depicted American and 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 African American participation, more specifically, we can't forget about that. I was looking at the women that we know went from Canada in our database and. With the exception of Jean Watts, the journalist, and a woman who was like a city councillor in Edmonton, they were all nurses, it seems. And like, they were almost all Greek nurses. So I'm really interested about some kind of like radical sect of Greek health health professionals somewhere in (laughs) Canada. So you are talking about like this intersection between gender and race. And Mm -hmm. that comes up to play in one like very complex way with when you talk about black women, but then there's also Jewish men. And you've talked to me in the past about kind of stereotypes around Jewish men and Jewish gender roles and how that plays into the Spanish Civil War as it was experienced or as it's remembered. Do you want to talk about that a bit more? So we remember, you know, we're talking about the 1930s time of intense anti-Semitism, not only in Germany, where we traditionally think of it, but but transnationally yeah. as well. And in Canada, there had been a lot of anti-Semitic violence, um, anti-Semitic sort of policies. And one of the really dominant 
tropes of, of representing Jewish people within the anti-Semitic perspective was to represent Jewish men as being really effeminate and weak and passive and um, certainly not, not good fighters. Mm-hmm. And a few scholars of Jewish-Spanish Civil War literature, like I'm thinking of Alan Wald's work, but um, but also scholars who work on, on Jewish-American literature more broadly, like Paul Brines, have noticed the tendency in some Jewish-American fiction of this period to try and depict Jewish-American men as actually being, like, strong mm-hmm. and and good soldiers and and virile and and fighters and i think that that is it's a really interesting way and a, and a significant way of trying to write oneself into the mainstream yeah. right if masculinity yeah. is defined as being strong and virile and you know sort of like ready to fight in a in a war ready to hang out with other men and do man things um, <laughs> the way to have yourself you know have yourself or your community be recognized as part of the mainstream is maybe not necessarily to challenge that that totally backwards understanding of masculinity but to write yourself into it to yeah. say oh no like jewish people can do this too and so the spanish civil war in which there was really sort of outsized Jewish participation transnationally becomes a time to participate firsthand and also in the in um, literary depictions to foreground the the important roles played by by Jewish soldiers. Yeah, that's great. And so can you provide an example of that perhaps from a Canadian Spanish Civil War novel written by a Jewish man. <laughs> Are there any examples of that that you could point to? <laughs> so my, um, so the example that you and I talk about all the time is this time of better earth, um, which is the Spanish Civil War novel written by Ted Allen, who also participated in the Spanish Civil War. Ted Allen was a Jewish writer and journalist, but Ted Allen was actually not his given name. He was using that name because he had been doing some undercover reporting on neo-Nazism, <laughs> or I guess not neo-Nazism in the 30s. It was yeah. just Nazi. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, brand new. <laughs> yeah. School Nazism um, in Canada. And so he had adopted a Gentile name. You know, I've argued elsewhere. I've written about how I think that some of the main characters in the novel are are coded as Jewish. Mm-hmm. The most sort of explicitly Jewish character in the novel, and I'm saying explicitly Jewish because he does things like speak in Yiddishized English. He has a, a sort of stereotypically Jewish name. His name is Milton Schwartz. He ends up being sort of the hero yeah. of the novel. In some ways, he ascends to be the leader of the small brigade. He's the only one who actually has any sort of wartime experience. He's really good at shooting guns and at, you know, trench life. And I think it's really interesting to think about what it means to to represent that in a war novel that the Jewish character and it's important to note right it's a Canadian novel but this this Jewish character is is American Mm -hmm. is is a New York Jew um with all the sort of stereotypes that that brings with it but that he's coded as being the the leader not ancillary or you know sort of adjacent to the action yeah that's really important and it makes me think about this double bind that stereotypes put us in where you don't want to 
conform to stereotypes and be a passive, effeminate man. But the other path, like writing yourself into the mainstream, is kind of laying claim to this norm that might not be good or might be damaging in many ways. Like military masculinity is not, (laughs) maybe have been an ideal then, but is also can be fairly toxic. So it's really interesting that it's hard to write, even imagine our way out of this bind. Like it's hard to imagine a third path that's not complying with the stereotype or defying it by being the, I like the idealized norm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we also need to remember, right, that the, the context for all of this is violence and death, right? So <laughs> yeah. for American soldiers fighting against fascism and for a time leaving Jim Crow America behind them for, for Jewish soldiers who are also fighting fascism with this sense that Nazism is growing in Europe and that anti-Semitism is only getting worse in Canada and the United States. Like the, the stakes are, are higher than just a sense of self. That's true. Um, Yeah. Are are truly life and death. And so to, yeah, I have this issue as well, where a lot of the stuff I read, I think like, this is, this is your vision of masculinity. Like you Mm -hmm. can't think of anything better than this, but simply turning one's back on it and saying like, I'm not going to play with your vision of toxic masculinity. I would refuse to engage is not necessarily a great option. Yeah, and that's a really good point because there is very much a sense that you have this enemy at home, whether it's in Canada or the United States, whether it's anti-Semitism or fascism or racism. And this is an opportunity to really fight that enemy abroad and to see the connection between that enemy abroad and that enemy at home and also see that connection between what you're experiencing and what the Spanish people are experiencing. It's like Mm -hmm. some very high level thinking that also does take into account like individual experiences. It's always impressive to me, especially now when I'm trying to understand conflicts that are going around in the world Mm -hmm. and how they relate to me and how I am. Like if there's an ethical imperative for me to do something, it's always impressive to me that these people figured it out (laughs) in a time before internet and a time before like, queer mm-hmm. and anti-racist theory as we now know it like they they saw these connections and they took action and it's yeah <laughs> impressive yeah and I'm not the first person to see this as as well as like a, a very prescient version of what was called the double B campaign right mm-hmm. um was uh, this idea um, promulgated in um, the African-American press around World War II that that victory over fascism and and Nazism abroad would also lead to victory over racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we do, we see like a a prescient early version of that at work in so much of of the Spanish Civil War involvement with, I think, volunteers from from marginalized groups also very aware that they were being written into a narrative by the dominant white gentile mainstream group on the left of hey look how multicultural we are look how tolerant we are look how how well everybody gets along whether or not that was actually the lived experience of of volunteers from mm-hmm. from marginalized mm-hmm. groups which 
spoiler, it was not yeah. always. And I want to follow up with that, but your description of the Double V campaign also made me think of the Canadian novel Half-Blood Blues by Ezzy Adugian, which is set in the present, but also in the late 1930s, and kind of follows a group of Black jazz musicians who live in Germany and aren't all German. Some of them are American and Canadian, but that kind of experience of Black culture in Germany during the rise of Nazism, super interesting. It's a really great book. That's really interesting. I really want to read this book by John Williams called Clifford's Blues. So John Williams was an an amazing African-American author, like Black Arts Movement um, author. And he wrote this really cool novel called Captain Black Man about an African-American soldier who is fighting in Vietnam and he's injured and he hallucinates that he is a part of, that he's fighting in every single war that African-Americans have fought in plus the Spanish Civil War and then this, like, future unnamed anti-colonial revolt. Mm. Um, So, and John Williams, like, super interesting author. But Clifford's Blues is is about African-Americans in Nazi Germany and in the camps in Dachau. Okay. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. a new new thing for us to read. What I think is really disturbing when I'm reading... Spanish Civil War literature, especially from the Republican side, is that the representation of Moors, the Moorish soldiers, is Mm. incredibly racist. And it uses terms that are familiar, but are so violent to describe especially Black masculinity, like terms of savagery and terms that paint an enemy that is not, is less than human in ways that are very white supremacist um, and that are working in an organization or in a movement, coalition, whatever we want to call it, that was what we would call like radical and leftist and progressive. So I wonder what it would have been like (laughs) as an African-American man or woman to be a part of this struggle that you see as advancing your cause, but you are working with people who are still part of who are still uh, exercising racism the ways the ways that white supremacy has taught them right yeah so this is I think one of the tensions that I really see it being at the heart of a lot of um, North American literature about the Spanish Civil War is that amidst these triumphal narratives and whether or not they deserve to be triumphal is like I want to you know question that but triumphal narratives of interracial solidarity on the side of the international brigades and people fighting in desegregated battalions like that comes up against these depictions uh, as you're saying of Moroccan mercenaries that are deeply deeply racist and so often it is done unthinkingly so there are writers who describe how um, Moroccan soldiers would sometimes switch sides if they were given the chance. Mm -hmm. But more Mm -hmm. often what we see in like Hemingway and Upton Sinclair and, um, and other authors are these depictions that are, that are really racist and that attribute so much violence and like to use your term, like savagery to these Moroccan soldiers. And in a lot in a lot of the depictions too, like I'm thinking again of this time of better earth, 
depictions by white authors, African-Americans are asked to, by other characters, to distance themselves from, from African characters. Mm -hmm. So in This Time of Better Earth, the character Doug, who is African-American, has to say explicitly, like, I am not African, I am an American. Mm -hmm. And And there are other authors, white authors, who I think treat this more sensitively. Hugh Garner, not always known for sensitive treatments of race, <laughs> but actually has this part of his short story, The Stretcher Bears, that was cut from a lot of the editions. But when he first published the short story, he writes about how sickened, or he writes about how sickened his um, his narrator was to see the Spanish Republican soldiers be so racist and violent towards a Moroccan prisoner of war. And Hugh Garner um, was, he also fought in the Spanish Civil War. So yes, he has right. this kind of firsthand experience, even when it's not a yeah. memoir, right? <laughs> he, does, he writes about it in his um, in his memoir as well. There's a very similar scene um, in his memoir. It's called One Damn Thing After Another, which is a really good name for a memoir. Um, <laughs> and he writes about it too, like watching. Um, and mind you, being a bystander, I want to say, yeah. while, um, while Spanish Republican soldiers tortured and killed a Moroccan prisoner of war. It's also worth noting, right, that like a lot of the the Spanish Republican propaganda also used racist tropes in in its depiction of the Moroccan soldiers. So even if North American participants or or you know English speaking participants in the Spanish Civil War were not completely familiar with what was going on in in Morocco and why there were so many Moroccan soldiers, they certainly should have recognized the racism in this anti-fascist propaganda. Yeah. Otherwise, anti-fascist, supposedly anti-fascist propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get this, like, I think in the most sort of crystallized way in Langston Hughes's poetry, yeah. as well as his journalism, um, Fane, but I'm thinking of of his poem, Dear Brother at Home, where the speaker of the poem talks about encountering this wounded Moroccan prisoner of war and trying to forge a, a like African diasporic bond mm-hmm. with him, but the 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 prisoner of war's condition deteriorates and worsens until he dies. And so they never get to have this moment of mutual recognition. Yeah. And in that poem he kind of talks about how they are sharing this same struggle even though they're on different sides and like the drive to fight imperialism as mm. it is represented in Spain and fascism, but also in British and American contexts. And I find that it's a really interesting tension because so much of the Spanish Civil War is about these tensions between all these differing groups who are in a coalition fighting the same enemy, but fighting for different causes. So I'd say, like, I'm I'm pointing, we're highlighting this tension between African-Americans fighting alongside people who were exhibiting white supremacy and racism but there's, like, so many different versions of that, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm like, sure. Spanish women fighting for gender equality alongside men who couldn't see the value in that or who were holding right. on to male privilege. Um, yeah. Well, and Spanish women in the very early days of the conflict were fighting. Like, yeah. were actually literally participating. And then the communists were like, oh, that might be too distracting. Yeah. Also, it sounds like you're spreading venereal disease. That was actually what they said. <laughs> because women alone can spread venereal disease. 
through women's awesome power. (laughs) Sad laugh. (laughs) So that was one of the project co-directors, Emily Robbins Sharp. Emily has been very busy writing and publishing on these topics. I've linked to her most recent articles in our show notes, which you can find at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. I've also included links and references to all the books, poems, movies, etc. that we mentioned in today's episode. I should note that Emily got cut off when she was discussing African-American women's presence in Spain. The fourth African-American woman to volunteer in Spain during the war was Louise Thompson Patterson, a Communist Party organizer and leading political figure in the civil rights and labor movements. We recommended some books to each other in this interview. Since recording, I read and loved John Williams' novel, Captain Blackman, and Emily published an article that focuses on Captain Blackman and Langston Hughes' Spanish Civil War writing. And Emily read Eziadugian's Half-Blood Blues, and this week she'll be presenting a conference paper on it at Canadian Holocaust Literature Charting the Field, which is a conference taking place in Ottawa. This week's episode was recorded by Karina Mickelson and Emily Robbins-Sharp, and produced by Karina Mickelson. It was supported by Canada and the Spanish Civil War and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Our intro music was Libertad by Iriarte and Pezoa, and our outro music was Spanish Civil War Song by Phil Ox. Find more episodes and more about our project at SpanishCivilWar.ca. Follow us on Twitter at CanadaSCW, and stay tuned for our next episode, which will be about camps in the 1930s. We'll be discussing Canada's relief camp system, prisoner of war camps in Spain, and the concentration camps in France during the war. So listen in. Do you remember Franco, Hitler's old ally? He butchered Spain's democracy, half a million free men died. Aye, 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 did you wonder why? Did you ever pause and cry? And don't forget the churches and the sad role that they played. They crucified their...